Welcome to Critical Hit of Major Spoilers Podcast. This week, mailbag episode. We know you've been asking for one. Because you've been screaming. sending us you've been sending mailbag. us those emails to podcast at majorspoilers.com. Hey, this one is from Sakul22. Hello from 2011. Mm-hmm. Now he did send this in 2019, so just so uh, I know. I decided okay. to start trying to watch all of your podcasts from the start. Currently I'm at episode 114, and you guys are trying to fight some some void gods. <laughs> I retroactively wish you guys luck, but I guess I'll find out when I finish listening. Mm-hmm. Well, 30 you know, 25% of us didn't make it. Uh here's one from Paul, who says, hey, Critical Hit crew, thanks for the great show. This question is mostly directed toward Rodrigo, but I'd love to hear others' thoughts as well. When I first started listening to Critical Hit years ago, one of the things that really hooked me beyond the interesting character and roleplay, great storyline, and fantastic improbability of Brian's rolling was Rodrigo's superb DM skills. Along with everything else he does well, one thing that we, that has very much intrigued me, however, uh, having seen it done before, have, ha- having never seen it done before in many years of gaming was the skill challenges. My group had not tried 4E. I knew I had to implement this on my own games. We have played Rodrigo Rules Skills Challenge for years. However, and this is the Lord Kensington's uh, rules for the Skills Challenge is what he's referring mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, as the players have steadily increased in level, I wonder how Rodrigo feels about or explains the increasing level of difficulty for what is essentially the same task. I've always played with the idea that in general, a skills task... Uh, should not increase in difficulty simply because characters are a higher level. For example, everything else being equal, climbing a rope is a DC-10 for a level 1 character as well as a level 20 character. Um, Arbitrarily increasing the difficulty of the level 20 character robs them of the increased skill and mechanical development. In skill challenges, though, not increasing the DC clearly makes no sense. And 4E uh, very clearly has a scaling DC table for just this purpose in the DMG. A perception check to say notice enemy movement and plot a path has been done at various levels of skill challenges on the show with differing DCs. It would make no sense if Rodrigo kept the DC the same, and open-ended skill challenges would probably often be trivial for high-level characters. I see something of an answer in saying there is a greater pressure to succeed, stakes are higher, even trivial tasks can be made difficult by specific circumstances, so on and so on, but this seems very unsatisfying and would probably not hold true in every skill check of every challenge. Do you have any? Do you just hand wave it for the sake of interesting gameplay? Genuinely curious about your thoughts. Sorry for the long-winded email. Thanks for the entertainment, Paul. Uh, well, uh, so is this there, where you there explain are Captain couple, America in the are elevator? Things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is, yeah, uh, if you are trying to scale a wall, and that's a DC fifteen. Uh, it maybe makes sense that you know a DC thirty scaling a wall you know, would make sense if you're being accosted by space trogonoids, right? <laughs> like the, the, the increase of, um, edit, you know, progressively more powerful enemies, uh, progressively more dire circumstances that makes sense. But really the more important thing is like, just like with combat, um, D and D doesn't always make sense. The basic system of Dungeons and Dragons is this, a uh, very well-designed Skinner box to get you high every time your character levels up, and when you're, and that's because you get more stuff, and all of your, uh, uh, all of your stats go up usually by one, um, if that. Uh, but it it feels good, so you kind of face progressively bigger and bigger and bigger challenges. Um, just like in combat, does that mean that because your character is such high level, he can't be stabbed in the back by like a, a normal, uh, you know, 
courtesan that has been sent to to murderize them? No, of course not, and it shouldn't. You know, uh, the the example that that I use is uh, if you watch Game of Thrones, you remember all the heroes from the Mad King's War. How they all end up? You know, it's like they don't all get killed by a dragon. Most of them end up just like poisoned by regular poison or stabbed in the gut or executed or whatever, right? It's like just because they're badasses doesn't mean that they can't be hurt by perfectly mundane things. And just because your character is a huge badass doesn't mean that they can't be inconvenienced by having to hold their breath for a whole minute while they're trying to swim through a sewer or whatever your skill challenge is about. Anybody else want to weigh in? Brian or Samantha? I, I mean, I think that's there. There are honestly different approaches to that that issue. Um, you know, the certainly fifth edition uh, takes a very like the bounded accuracy approach is meant to embody that mechanically uh, by so that like no matter really how high a level you are, a bunch of goblins are always going to be a threat. Um, but you know, there are systems that make it so that that those, once you hit a certain level, um, they're not, um, and it's really kind of depending on what kind of, uh, fantasy you want to play. Like, do you imagine your, uh, heroes is more along the lines of like Game of Thrones or I don't know, like more high fantasy where like, you know, like a kind of classical Lord of the Rings where like the big heroes can wade into near endless armies of, of orcs and goblins and they're not going to come, they're not, it's not going to be a problem until like a Nazgul shows up. The other thing is also um, you as a game master, if you want things to seem bigger, if you want things to seem more epic or more important or whatever, um, you can just kind of put that on the players a little bit uh, you guys have seen me do that with skill challenges on the show where somebody will be like, I climb up on the tree. I'm like, okay, you're up on the tree. What do I do now? It's like, I look across the battlefield and it's like, okay, you look across the battlefield. What are you looking for? Like, what are you trying to do here? Right? It's like, give me something important, interesting, whatever that your character's trying to do. Um, and you know, sometimes that's like the, that's the way to go. It's, you know, if you're, again, if your character's trying to scale that wall or a, a player in your group is trying to scale that wall and you don't feel like that's an adequate challenge, then just tell them that they scale the wall and what do they do afterwards? Yeah. What also, yeah. I mean, your environment will change too, right? I mean, if you're a level one, maybe scaling the wall is scaling the, you know, the, the 10 foot hall town wall. But by the time <laughs> right. you're up to level 15 or 20, you're climbing the bar- heavily barricaded wall obsidian of wall of, of smooth glass. Right. <laughs> and right. so, yeah, so you have to, you can add in some adjectives yeah. uh, to, uh, to make that uh, skills challenge narratively a little bit uh, tougher. Yeah. I, kinda, I, I'll go ahead. It kind of depends on the ethos of the game that you're playing too, because for me, Dungeons and Dragons has always had, for my personal likeness or my uh, personal enjoyment, a little too much focus on the numbers, which I think is an artifact of it kind of starting as um, a war game, you know, a a combat game. It's basically, you know, it's, it's Dungeons and Dragons is essentially originally was set up to be, uh, I can't even remember the word of the thing. And I had it right there at the base. Supplement of chain mail. No, it's, (laughs) It's basically a game where you're playing something and this is the number that you have and you have, it's like risk on some level. 
you have the numbers to understand what's going on. Whereas in other games, uh, and I actually had some discomfort when we transitioned to playing Fate for a while, we had that Fate narrative thing where you can make this happen if there's a justification and you can oh. make it work. You mean the simulationist versus narrativist? Exactly. Uh, scale? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. See, Rodrigo well, has big I words think that, for their awesomeness. I think that leads into our next question from sent from my iPhone, mm -hmm. uh, who says, question for the Critically Hit crew, any of you guys ever play or run a game with the Genesis system? If so, what are your thoughts on the narrative dice system versus traditional D20 system? I'm intrigued by this because I'm currently running a 5e game with a bunch of new players, and they seem to be struggling to keep up with some of the roles in combat. Attack, damage, saving throws, spell, DCs, etc. Do you think this is something that might be easier for them? Now, I don't know this Genesis system or Genesis system, G-E-N-E-S-Y-S -E -E system. Brian, it's, are you familiar with it? It's uh, basically the uh, system or the setting neutral uh, RPG system version of what they developed for the Fantasy Flight Star Wars RPG. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, they basically uh, made a standalone rule book without, you know, a licensed setting and that you can use to play any number of settings. So have you used this? Is this easier no. for 5e people or, or not? I've never actually played it. I picked up the very first Fantasy Flight Star Wars RPG, but never played it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I played the Fantasy Flight RPG. I actually really like the system in that. Okay. Um, so, it's, so, so um, I mean, it still has mechanical things. It, it puts a lot of pressure on both the players and uh, GMs, I would say, to like come up with uh, more narrative stuff. So mm -hmm. the, the neat thing about it is that um, instead of just succeeding or failing, um, you can uh, succeed with advantage. I, I think that's oh, the right word for yeah, it. Yeah. Or, or, or fail with advantage or succeed with threat um or like um so basically there's like there the idea is that there can be complications or sort of good things that come out of mm -hmm. failure um and then it's kind of up to both the player and the uh storyteller to come up with what those are so like it could be that you know you bluff your way into uh like the back room of a gambling den by saying you're like this famous bounty hunter and you if you succeed with threat you might be able to get back there through that cover story, but then someone would be like, oh, this famous bounty hunter, I want you to take a bounty for me. And then uh, you yeah. would wind up in a more complicated situation. So it, it has a chance, the opportunity to be really uh, cool and like give, uh, get away from like the kind of binary system that can make people feel bad for mm -hmm. failing, but it can also uh, be fairly stressful because you'll have to think of a lot of stuff on the fly. This sounds a little bit like what we were doing in Sentinels of the Multiverse. Yeah, like Sentinels or uh, in Urban Shadows or mm -hmm. yep. a bit in Fate. I mean, there's definitely we've dealt with systems that have similar yeah. degrees of success. Or Now this is these narrative dice are different from those um, like story cards. Like, I don't know what to do and you draw from this deck that has like ideas or things that you could do in a particular situation. Are you familiar with those? Anybody familiar with those? No. Okay. All right. Just me then. Yeah, the, the, the Somebody work on that. It's a million dollar idea. They just tell you whether you succeed or fail yeah. or and whether you get success or threat or advantage. Okay. All right. There you go. You know what they say, though? The Genesis was no Dreamcast, but Echo the Dolphin was top notch. No, it was not. Uh, yeah, well, hello, Stephen and the rest of the Major great. Spoilers crew. I'm a longtime listener yeah. and emailing today because I have a few questions. I'm planning on releasing a real play D&D podcast based on the world I've been working on. It'll be 5e, but I was wondering if there's any type of permission I need to use Rodrigo's skill challenge rules. Um, 
no, you just should give credit. Uh, you can go and find these rules everywhere. And I think there's a couple of other podcasts, Rodrigo, that are using those, right? Yeah, I, I know that there's a handful of them. Some have even translated them to uh, fifth edition already. So uh, get online, look for the Lord Kensington rules of skills challenges um, and see if somebody, because I know there's at least one podcast that uses them and has uh, a 5e hack for them. Yeah. Uh, do you guys ever use covers of your critical hit uh, theme music? I don't know. We don't own the music. Uh, for that, that's a licensed thing that we have. That's uh, some um, sound library stuff. So I don't know about covers of that. Um, if anybody wanted to send us a cover, could we well, use it? I don't think so because, you know, that was created by somebody else. This was, you know, it's quote unquote licensed. It's not a free Creative right. Commons music. So my guess would be you would have to contact the originator of that song see if they allow for covers, and if that is something that's under RIAA or BMI or any other kind of music licensing, there may be a licensing fee for that. But if you're just talking about, hey, do you guys accept other songs that you might consider for Critical Hit? I mean, you can certainly send them. Uh, we'd love to listen to them. Uh, we've played some <laughs> original fan music before in the past. Uh, they haven't become any kind of a theme song or anything like that. Um, but yeah, the the cover music is going to be super, super specific on, you know, what the licensing is on that. Anytime you do a cover, you're paying the artist uh, some way, shape, yeah. or form. So uh, thank you for that, Michael. Let's see. Here comes one from Sean who says, apparently a brother who works at a movie theater in Lawrence has met Matthew. It never ceases to amaze me how small uh -huh. the world actually is. In fact, as I lived in Lawrence uh, for a fair number of years back in the late 90s and was an avid gamer, it is quite possible that I met Matthew somewhere along the way as well. Um, it's a small world, but a big Matthew. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to miss, right? Hey, <laughs> hey! I'm just saying that your far. your DC is really low. I will D your C. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, here's one from Angela. She's got a se several questions. My name is Angela. Hello, Angela. I'm a relatively new listener from Minnesota. Uh, oh, she is uh, a couple of months ago. She started listening to the show. She's up to episode two fifty seven. Go Bears. I'm currently in a couple of different uh, game groups, one of which has been be going for roughly two years now. He means actual Bears. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> uh, I have several questions I'm hoping you can help me with. First off, in one group, my bard has ended up with a pet uh, baby pseudo-dragon, so I got to wondering, can bards have familiars? Also, how would a familiar generally work? Um... Depends on what edition you're playing. Yeah. There are yep. very likely rules for that. Yeah, she's got uh, a fifth. In... She's doing fifth edition. Yeah, so um... I would refer you to your player's handbook and or DMG on that. Uh, if you're talking about how a, a bard would interact or acquire a familiar, that's kind of up to you and the kind of bard you're playing. Like if you're talking about like in role play terms, but if you're asking mechanically, that's that's gonna come from your uh, DMG or uh, or player's handbook if if the if the option is there. Now she knows I've... that eventually the precious bard will have to leave the game permanently, so I have a character waiting in the wings who's going to need of a bit of a homebrew work. I know that ultimately his stats and usability will have to be approved by the DM, but do you have any pointers for setting up a character that is a result of genetic roulette? What does that I'm mean? Not sure what I that don't means. know what that means either. I think it's just like a random mishmash of half different arm, things. Half Damon. 
<laughs> one one like time, a... Uh, a friend of mine pitched me a character who uh, he basically told me that he wanted to play Godzilla in a D and D game. So yeah. we came up with a character who was an orc who had fallen through a portal into the positive energy plane, and when he came out, he had like nuclear breath. <laughs> so we we gave him. This was in third edition. We gave him a um, a half dragon Radiant template. Damage. Yeah, we, we gave him a half-dragon template, so he had a breath weapon, and uh, we made him a sorcerer. I think that's what we settled on. To that, It's what gave us the like more, most spectacular effects uh, and, and still, you know, left, because all sorcerers care about is their charisma, so he could have, like, a relatively high strength and still deal, deal some damage, at least, you know, early on in the game before uh, everybody outpaced them base attack bonus-wise. Any Any other... Brian, Sam, Matthew. Um, Make a I, pundit I mean, square and start rolling d4s. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Throw a dice. I mean, yeah. just be like, "Hey, uh, here's thing," and now he's one quarter tiefling. Um, yeah. I would say on the a first question, I believe sorcerer. you would have to multi-class to get a bard with um, an actual familiar mechanically. Uh, again, it depends on the system. Like in Fourth Ed, yeah. you could do it easily. Just take yeah. the the arcane familiar, familiar. Ar exactly, because yeah. Bard is an arcane yeah. class. Well, this is, I think, a separate question from the pseudo. Right. Sure. Uh, so finally, the third question is: I've taken up the role of DM in my longer running group. I've only run one session so far, but do you have any advice for me as a first-time DM? Are there any common pitfalls I might be tempted to dive into at first? I've already removed my Bard from play for the time being. It's a very large group. So I should have plenty of time to hear your thoughts before we have too many sessions from May of 2019. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're I'm sure we're right up to the deadline. Yep. Um, I guess you just have to kind of know yourself and what you like, the kind of stories that you want to tell and how you organizationally work best. If you're a details person, start with the details. If you're a big picture person start with the big picture um and then fill in stuff as you go um i don't know game mastering is really a large burlap sack full of disciplines so it you know uh, and and none of us are are good at all of them you know some some game masters are bad with numbers some game masters are not really people people um, some game masters struggle with the storytelling, so it's hard not knowing what your style is to to really uh, give you some advice. I guess take lots of notes and keep lots of notes. Yeah, and I would say make sure you know how to manage everybody in your group uh, so that mm. they don't devolve into, you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes of side goofery uh, that has nothing or to do to push your story ahead if that's what you're trying to do in that particular mm. session. I mean, I'd like to to that. Yeah, exactly. It depends on your group. Like, right, right. Subgroups, that, that's what they live for. Uh, I, I would actually say, like, almost the opposite. Like, just try not to get away in the way of your players too much. I think one of the things that a lot of um, new GMs uh, make the mistake of is that they have, like, the idea of where their story is going to go and what they think everyone mm. is going to do. And then when players try to do anything different, they uh, don't like that. Um, yep. And just, I guess, remember that you're running a game, not writing a story. Um, and like, you should certainly have a story and have ideas and come up with, uh, you know, NPCs and plot and things like that, but just be, be ready to, to make things up on the fly as much as possible and, and don't sweat things too much when, when you have to do that. Um, if you got a good group, they'll, they'll accept that, but just try to like, you know, don't force people to do 
what you want them to do. Let them have fun. Yeah. Know your players is my my biggest piece of advice is have an idea of what your players are like and what they're into. And if you have, you know, if you have a group that contains somebody like Rob, who is really great with, you know, all of the, the numbers and the rules and the obscurity, if that player is there, use them to your advantage. If you have somebody like me, who's a, a total ham, but absolutely useless for remembering, you know, what's on the sheet. You can be aware of that, but you can also play that character to your advantage. I think that's Rodrigo's biggest skill is no matter who's in the party, I feel like he handles us really well. And especially when things get out of control, you have to remember that these are going to be your friends. You want to be respectful. You want to be stern if you have to. But, you know, you're all in the, in the, the whole thing of creating a story together. And I think that's the biggest part for me is remember that you are creating a story together. And if somebody decides, well, this concept that you thought was one thing is actually something else, you can't necessarily negate them and say, well, that's not what we discussed, so you can't do that. You kind of have to find a way to work with your players. Uh, so here is a here is a question from Josh who says that I bought a storage locker and it was a game store that went out of business and they still had a lot of four ebooks. So I gave everyone in my group a copy of some of the core books and now I'm going to DM a 4E game. Problem is we yeah. picked up problem is we picked up a new player. He was see the problem was that that game company decided to stick with uh, 4E and that's why they uh no, they went out with that's why they went out of business. Yeah, that's why they went out of business. Uh, it, so anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't take a decision like that for a game store to go out of business. No, 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 it's, no, I'm just it's, joking. It's kind of rough out there. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the problem is we picked up a new player and he wants to make an artificer and I have no clue where to start. So my long question is, Brian, mm -hmm. how do you make an artificer? <laughs> well, uh, look up the artificer class in the uh, Eberron player's guide. Yeah. So I think that's the thing it's... is if you don't have that Eberron's player's guide, that's where the artificer class is at, right? Yeah, yeah. that's that's what you're gonna want to find. Uh, is it on Drive Through RPG? I mean, you look, uh, see if you can find it somewhere cheap on Amazon. I I think all fourth edition books are on Drive Through RPG. Uh, let me check. And uh, yeah. where's the Forgotten Realms? Or no, it's Eberron. Eberron. Yeah, it is on uh, Drive Through RPG for eight bucks. Uh, that might be a sell price right now because they just released uh, Eberron for fifth edition. Mm -hmm. But uh. Yeah, uh, pick that up if uh, you don't have access to that, because uh, that's pretty much going to tell you all the things you need for an Artificer character. And uh, literally all the things, because the Artificer never got more support than the Eberron Player's Guide. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think there was like a uh, dungeon article, but yeah, probably don't bother with that Those too aren't much. Canon. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. I, there's not even like, basically, yeah, you can... Again, if you have an article, I think that's the only thing that really gives you like a different subclass option. So I don't think you really even have to do that with an artificer. Yeah, I would say if you because of that, because of that lack of support, if you do have an artificer, have them think about how they want the character to play and really consider multi-classing. Multi yeah, because that's going to give you more options. Most importantly, more paragon paths. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have like an artificer wizard that'll open up all the wizard or uh, paragon paths, and there might be something there that plays more like what you want than the artificer paragon paths because there aren't that many. Um, and then uh, there's some epic destinies that kind of allow you to cheat where you get your powers from if you get that far. 
um, or if you guys jump ahead. So uh, there's that as well. But yeah, multi-class, especially as an artificer, multi-classing is your friend. This is from Holly. This question is for Holly, mostly a question for Stephen. Do you ever have people re-record something they said or rephrase it after some extra noise or talking over each other for a cleaner edit? I know you cut out some talking over each other and noises or, or so on. Just curious if you ever get to points where you stop recording to say, can you say that again to have a cleaner edit? Yeah, we do uh, do that. Occasionally, if uh, there's something that cuts out or something that's not clear or someone uh, stumbles, mumbles, I'll say, hey, can you re-say that again? Uh, especially if there's it, multiple people talking. Um, yeah, it's we do pretty that. rare, though. Yeah, we it's not that often. We don't roll things back very often. No, now yeah, the one thing... There's like an actual technical difficulty where someone gets dropped or the recording right. fails. Yeah. Right. Um, but the we don't do like, I'm pretty sure... And I and I'm this is just my speculation on listening to the show. I'm pretty sure Adventure Zone goes back and re-records like their main narration part. Like, um, for example, when Sam was doing Weird Western and she had those long blocks of of narration. I'm yeah. pretty sure that there are some shows, and I think Adventure yeah. Zone, if you listen to their narration blocks, is stuff Griffin that they go back and re-record. Definitely has, uh, you know, the occasional like box text moments where he like produces that separately and yeah, puts yeah. them in. And I'm okay with that from the entertainment standpoint. Um, but if you're looking, brings to... in a guest voice to like do this one line for an NPC or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that is from Holly. Thank you, Holly, for that question. Here is an email from Jonah, who is 11 years old, who says, Hi, I'm Jonah. I'm 11 years old. I'm Hi, in a gaming Jonah, group. I'm Matthew. I'm 48. I'm in a gaming group of people that are new to Dungeons & Dragons. I'm the only experienced one, <laughs> but I really want to be a player. Oh, so apparently he gets to be the DM, and he wants to play the game. I've tried looking Aww. everywhere, but there's no other gaming group for an 11-year-old. Thank you so much for the podcast. I'm only up to episode 234, so there's lots of pods of casting to be listening to, and Ket is the best if he's still around. Well, he's not. Uh, I'm sorry. This problem will haunt you for the rest of your life. It, it really will. I, yep. I mean, uh, yeah. this, like, I, I kind of feel like this is why Critical Hit even happened. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it's one of the big questions of the age: is do you participate in a game that wouldn't be as enjoyable as one that you make in order to have the enjoyment of not having to make the game? Well, or or can you play at all if you're not the one running it? Because yep. lots of people are mm -hmm. not going to want to play or not going to want to run. Especially um, if you really want to try systems other than like D and D or White Wolf. Oh boy, do you going to have to buckle down and just run but some things? So the one compromise you could have is um, there are systems that don't have DMs. Um, they're, you know, yeah. a little rarer but uh, and a little weirder typically because they don't have nearly as much uh, narrative stuff. But uh, but they're out there. And yeah, Fiasco is one. Yeah. If, yep. if you have a group that meets regularly and you're the game master, I would say run a short campaign. And then at the end of that campaign, be like, okay, well, I would like for someone else to try to run and... You know, if somebody volunteers, then help them, let them borrow your books, make it easy for them to run the game. Um, mm -hmm. And then maybe you'll get to play. That's, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what I did. And what I have done is, you know, you teach people <laughs> to play, you get them interested in being a game master. Um, and then they will hopefully run a game for you someday. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yes. Now, uh, here is an email from someone by the name of Robert Odekirk. Unfortunately, not Robert Odenkirk. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Robert is still uh, one of our favorite listeners of all time because he says, That's I right. just discovered this about a week ago and decided to start at episode one and work my way towards catching up. 
I just got to the part where the party is in the tower on the moon, and I have to make a uh, and have to make a decision regarding Smith. I have to say the suspense is killing me, and I can say that I have a new favorite podcast to listen to at work. Thank you guys for the time you take to make this, and congratulations as of right now, five hundred and twelve episodes strong. Yeah, wow. thank you. Uh, here is one from Michael who says. Uh, I have two parties that I DM for. I use the same general play world for. Would it be a good or bad idea to reference the happening of one group's actions in the other? Both groups do contain a couple people from the other, so I'm worried about metagaming crossover, especially since at one point in the past, I have actually had the two groups meet up when nobody from one was in the other. Is this a bad idea to do confusion and conflicts of interest with the mutual group members since they are on a semi-conflicting sides? Or could this be a potentially good thing and I would just need to pull the mutual members aside and talk to them? What would you have? What would you guys do in a situation like this? Well, That's it's not inherently mind. a bad thing. No, that sounds but, like a fun idea. Yeah, I'll sprinkling. But remember, it is a high level idea. I mean, yeah. this is a, a 303 level class. If you're going to do this, you're going to have all of the problems of both games, and they're probably going to exponentially multiply if the games are crossing over, especially if you have a player who or players who cross over between the games who are super aware of things. I mean, we had this problem recently in a game of fate we were playing. My daughter is not quite 16. And uh, our characters showed up at a point where previous characters that we had played were. And she jokingly started trying to use player knowledge from that previous character. And I'm like, child, do not make me have to correct you. But... (laughs) It, it's a thing. It's a it's a an issue. You're going to have more problems, so it's not a bad idea. It's just going to be harder for you and harder for your players, but it may actually be more rewarding as well. So you could also mess with your players by having them like get rumors about things that are going on about uh, their characters in the other game and, <laughs> and not just not be true. There's also that, or you could just have like not really the crossover and just have like the references to the other group just be more Easter eggs and not mm-hmm. have to really mess with each other. You, yeah. could, you could actually really mess with their heads by having people say what they really think about the characters who aren't there. Mm-hmm. And then you hear that sort of thing and it crushes your spirit and, you, you know, ends your will to live. Um, I would say uh, definitely, like, like Matthew said, this is not a bad idea, but it's an idea that I wouldn't do. And that's because of, like, kind of the level of control that I like to have over my games. And it seems that, like, introducing that many variables could make things kind of spiral out of control, which, if you're down with that, is fine. Uh, The only other thing I would say is you have to think about your game's themes, what's important, what's relevant, because a big intra-party crossover can get away from you it it can it's its own theme and it's such a thing when like iron man meets thor that you know or you know when like spider-man walks anywhere and there's like a random guy there and he's like i'm gonna boost your book um that uh, it it can really pull away from the story that you're trying to tell so if the story that you're trying to tell is here are these two parties and eventually they're gonna meet and maybe they cross paths and then they go on the, their own way. That's fine. But if you've got like a murder mystery on one side and like a traveling adventure, like episodic adventure on the other, when they meet, you might actually have some trouble jiving um, because the, the themes don't match. Yep. Do you guys ever recycle your games? Do you ever like Sam, if 
someone had never listened to Weird Western, you know that no one in your group had listened to Weird Western, would you run that exact same game for another group? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, you can rerun certain things, but like, I, at least, I mean, certainly Weird Western was so much designed around your guys' characters, mm -hmm. um, and like, no two groups are really the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I've known people that have run the same, like, Ravenloft campaign for multiple groups uh, because that's kind of like uh, pre-gen story. Yeah, yeah. But um, but you know it's it's it can't really be the same game if you have two different parties doing two different things. It's going to take different directions, and so it, I think it would kind of be cheating people out of uh, uh, the game experience to try to to replicate it um, fully. Yeah, Brian or Matthew. What? Thematically cannibalizing previous works, I believe, is fully on the table at all times. And sure, sure. that, yeah. I mean, that that's kind of a thing that you, you really do run into. They say that every writer has their little thumbprints. That's You'll always have true. a Stephen King. Every Stephen King character will have a guy who's a writer who used to be an alcoholic. That's something that you run into over and over and over. And it never really, it's never detrimental to it. So, you know, if you are aware of the things that you do over and over or the things that you can pull from that, say, weird Western game and have sort of a similar theme, take uh, the evil vampire in the manor and turn him into an evil space vampire in a space manor. And, you know, instead of having our guns, we all have pew pew lasers for a completely different game. You're going to have a different game because, as Sam pointed out, your players are going to do different stuff. But I feel like that is on the table especially if you're a creator like me who sometimes people are like hey you want to run a game and i'm like sure they're like okay it starts in 10 minutes okay <laughs> that's something that does happen when you're when you're in gaming circles and sometimes you have to do well not have to sometimes it's easier to do it and i'm really a can you start my orange kind of person in general so i feel like that is perfectly legit Here's an email from Adam, who has a lot of great things to say, but he keeps uh, referring to our show as Critical Role, so I guess we'll move on to another question. <laughs> oh, Adam. Zing! That's, that's a rookie mistake. You hate to see that. Hi, my name is Sean. I started listening to Critical Hit in mid-2015, and now I finally have some uh, questions. He's re-listening to the show, and two things have crossed his mind while listening to episode 66. Uh, now that Rob has lost Guy... Has he also lost the benefits he gave him, like speaking supernal and skill bonuses like he mentioned that Guy gave him? Uh, yes, very likely he did. Okay. Uh, then he asked a question, did Rob ever make his Bollywog campaign? I don't know because Rob's not here this week. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know that he did while we were there, but uh, he might have gone on to, to actually run it. I'm trying right. to remember what happened in episode 66. That sounds like a meaningful number. I mean, That's meaningful a things Crusade happen episode, right? critical hit all the time. Meaningfully, you guys go shopping um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, like streets are crossed. Hot merging action. Uh, this one is from uh, Atlee, who says, I have uh, some questions. Do any of you guys paint minis or do any D&D &D crafting? Hmm. Um, I don't. I would like to be able to paint. <laughs> Because uh, I've got a lot of unpainted minis. Uh, Dr. Brad Will paints minis all of the time. Robin, who some of you have not y yet met, she paints minis and teaches classes on minis uh, that she does at our local library. Uh, but I don't paint minis. Sam, do you paint? I know, uh, doesn't your husband paint? 
No, neither of us do. Oh, okay. um, I've got a, a good friend who uh, who does. He's really into it, and he's some he's painted some custom ones for us. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, I don't have the patience for that. <laughs> yeah, kind of the same. I really want to get into it, especially with the uh, recent board game purchases. Yeah, so yeah, Brian and I have been playing Street Masters that you can see yeah. on our Munchkinland podcast, and we would really like to paint those miniatures. My worry is that I'm going to suck at it, yeah, and I'm going to ruin these well. minis because they now look like a glob of, of paint instead of something that actually yeah. looks cool. Yeah, I definitely know um, that fear, and that's kind of the impetus of why I bought an extra boss oh, set yeah, so I can so try can to mess up, up one and maybe get <laughs> yeah. the other one good. Painting miniatures is a skill, and it's it's actually quite a skill because you need to get really fine details because miniatures are, you know, mini. So it's it can be very frustrating, I think, for people to get started and, you know, like prime the thing. And then they're like, OK, time to draw an eye. And it's like, you, know, <laughs> yeah. you might not even you might not have the right you might not even have the right brushes. You might not even have the right tools to begin with. So it, it can be very uh, kind of draining to fail at it. But that's kind of the deal with art in general. If you want to get good at drawing on a tablet, if you want to get good at painting spray painting, whatever. And I was like, you're going to have to practice and you're going to have to ruin things for a while. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't these have... are an expensive media. They, they can be. Um, I think, I mean, yes. Unless you, they, unless they you happen to get like the bones. Yeah, the bones. Like yeah. I've got a bunch of bone sets that I I really am just thinking of giving to Robin because she's been so great to a lot of things she's been doing uh, for us behind the scenes. Uh, but I also am like, you know, I should keep half of these and just screw them, <laughs> screw them up. Yeah. Uh, to do I about... mean, there's... You can you can get um, plastic like cheap plastic toys. You would just yeah. have to like try to find a, a somewhat of a match in plastic because yeah. if it's like you know rubbery plastic, then yeah. the the paint's not gonna take to it yeah. in the same way. But there are going to be some plastic miniature or some plastic like toys that you can go online and order in bulk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for relatively cheap, you, uh, yeah, yeah. Practice on practice on cheap stuff, and then move yeah. on to actually painting your miniatures. Yeah, you don't have to buy a whole Space Marine army, mm -hmm. screw it up, and then buy a whole other Space Marine army. Yeah, yeah. and we might Super have secret. some. We might have some um, painting videos coming up in the future, but we'll just see how those how those go. Nice. Yes. Super secret Matthew backstory. I actually did extensive painting back in the day when I worked in a gaming store. Because when I was a little kid, I injured my left arm really badly. And there are things that I will do specifically so that I'm having to do fine motor stuff with my left hand. Mm -hmm. And when I was working at the store, we had a bunch of hero clicks and we had a bunch of just leftover plastic and lead miniatures. And so I got really into painting and customizing miniatures for our games and stuff for probably three or four years. And then it became clear that if you didn't work in that gaming store and say you weren't Matthew and you no longer had a discount or access to, Hey, this is trash, throw it out or mm -hmm. keep it. You can't afford to do it. So that's the main reason that I stopped is well, that and the fact that I had a child and no time in my life, but yeah, it's one of those things that I find extremely uh, relaxing in a terrible way because you sit there and you're like, this is wonderful and Zen and I messed up the eyes. Ah, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, I was I was really hoping when you said that you had injured your left arm that you were going to say that you had replaced it with an airbrush nuzzle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tattoo exactly. gun, actually. A cyborg for painting. Yep. Yep. Uh, so here's the other question: Are Robin Bryan slash Randis and Ket together? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, Brian's married, yeah. so, I mean... Uh, Rob and Brian actually used to live together, so... Mm-hmm. Um, That's why they, they were roommates. chemistry of, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> if you're picking up on any sort of, like... Tension yep. there. That's because they used they used to like one of them had to hound the other for rent. Mm. <laughs> They've got that leaning on the front of the quick stop kind of thing going on. For... <laughs> and if you if you listen closely enough, you can tell which one was hounding the other one for rent. Has <laughs> 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 uh, uh, so our... Ket had any uh, canonical relationships in the game? Ket uh, has. Um... Ked has talked he's, about people that he's yeah. dated, but he doesn't go into it very much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess Randa's Randa, mom wants him Randa's to find out. Like, has canonically yeah, dodged. Randa's has all but built a rocket <laughs> to get away from any sort of like <laughs> expectation that he needs to like produce an heir for his like now part of the kingdom. Oh man, you guys a should go rocket. You say you guys should <laughs> go into um, our dis- uh, Discord server because occasionally the question of everyone's sexuality will come up. As to, you know, who is dating who, who is, you know, who falls into this, into this category or that category. And it's, it's interesting to see everybody's thoughts. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying any one person is right or wrong because it hasn't come up in the game. So I think, you know, if people want, uh, if people want Randus and uh, Sakar to be together, then in their mind, they can be together. some people really do. Yeah. Like Like, really, really do. And you know that's that's a thing. I know who all of the characters that I've played are, and you know I'm never going to answer that question any more than any of them would answer it in character. Mm-hmm. And none of the characters that I've played on Critical Hit are even going to give, for various different reasons, to give that question an answer. One's going to lie. One's going to look at you like you are just a complete yutz for asking. One's not going to understand the question at all. And then one's a sexy blue man. So, you know, you got that whole thing going. <laughs> oh, and the robot. Don't forget the robot. Here is a question from Alex who says, so marks supersede each other, but what about things like Ket's curse and Trell's quarry? Do two curses supersede each other as well? Uh, they, it, it depends on the text. I think curse specifically does, but Hunter's quarry does not, um, there is, I want to say there's a warlock feat that allows you, that allows two warlocks to curse the same thing. Um, but I think Hunter's Quarry is just open. If you have two rangers, two rangers can have a Hunter's Quarry on the same uh, character. And I think that's because specifically uh, the curse sticks. So you can curse something else every turn, but Hunter's Quarry has to, is just like a one, like single enemy thing. So you have to like move it around. Uh, Kyle asked, my question for you is, who was your favorite alternate character to play during the Void Saga? Well, Void Saga isn't over, so there could be alter- other alternate characters coming up. Number two, good, Sophie's Choice, because test, I love though. all of my... I, I like this I like this listener who is just assuming that we're not going to get to this email until, like, <laughs> 2045. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. smart. Well, I mean, call, you know, call. that's fair. Uh, it could be. Uh, but uh, I love all of my characters equally. I do not uh, favor one over the other. <laughs> But, I do uh, not have but if any I... alternate characters. Every character that I have played in, in uh, Critical Hit is someone that I have imbued with as much life as I can do based on the meager talent and my ability to chew every piece of scenery completely and then digest it. But I don't believe in alternate characters. And that may be because, you know, uh, with the exception of Rob, I think I've probably had as many characters or more than anyone else on the show. I've but had yeah, the we're fewest because I've only had the one. 
Well, yeah, you're only ever going to get the one. That's the rule now. Apparently. Cat is always yes. six rangers. Sam gets one character, and Brian can't roll for crap. That's the rules of Critical Hit. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, 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 Rodrigo, who is your favorite character in, in the Void <laughs> Saga? My my favorite character in the entirety of the Void yes. Saga? Yes. Stagsy. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty my, good no, my favorite character in the entirety of the Void Saga is Randis. Oh, <laughs> I, I like I, Randis has always kind of enabled this huge portion of nonsense to enter the game. Hmm. Um, and to and, and to be fair, every every character in the in the Void Saga or every PC in the Void Saga has been able to do that. Obviously, we can see Feywild's stuff through Orem. Uh, Little Sparkle brings that Shadowrun angle to things. Hmm. Um, but yeah, just consistently, I can always rely on uh, on Randis to, uh, to, to be kind of a, like a very consistent monkey wrench in a good way. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah. Best characters in the Void Saga without fail are the two uh, arguing fishmongers. Yeah. The best. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've reached the bottom of the mailbag. If you have other questions, please send them our way, podcast at majorspoilers.com. And if you would like to see us uh, bring you a monthly live chat where you can ask us questions, the GM Roundtable is right around the corner, uh, but you do need to be a patron in order to access that content. And we'll get into some deeper questions like, um, you know, how do you figure out what hook you want for your game and have everybody go around and talk about how they build up you know, the, the main hook for the game or where do you come up with settings or ideas and those kinds of things. And you can pick our brains uh, as we get to those. But those are coming up, but you will need to be a patron for that in order to participate live. And then probably a month or two after we record, you know, with uh, with the show live, we'll probably release to everyone else. But if you have questions that you want answered and you want to be a better GMDM, then uh, you better head over to patreon.com slash major spoiler. Sign up at the $5 level. That is probably going to get you your best bang for your buck. Unless, of course, you're into things like T-shirts and mugs and original art and character sheets and all that other stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you're just looking for stuff early and uh, access to additional bonus podcasts, then patreon.com slash major spoilers is the place you want to go. All right. We will be back next time with another episode of Critical Hit. And until then, here's hoping all of your dice rolls are critical hits. Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009. Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2010. Major Spoilers is copyright 2011. Major Spoilers is copyright 2012. Major Spoilers is copyright 2013. Major Spoilers is copyright 2014. This podcast is copyright 2015 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. This podcast is copyright 2018 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. This podcast is copyright 2019 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.